Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Scotty Kirkland, whose article, Mobile and the Boswell Amendment, in the Alabama Review of July 2012, is one of the co-winners of the Milo Howard Award for Best Article in the Previous Two Years, presented at the Alabama Historical Association meeting in April of 2014. Scotty, congratulations on winning the Howard Award. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. I wonder if you'll tell a little bit about yourself and your article. Sure. I've been here at the History Museum of Mobile serving as the curator of history for about three years. I have a master's in American history from the University of South Alabama and an undergraduate degree in social and political science from Troy University, Dothan. The Boswell Amendment article grew out of my master's thesis and it is one of the main chapters in my forthcoming book on politics and civil rights in 20th century Mobile, which is currently under review with the University of North Carolina Press. Tell us about the thesis of your article and your other research ideas. Sure. The Boswell Amendment was a very short-lived codicil to the Alabama Constitution, and it was proposed in 1946 by a group of conservative Alabama Democrats who were trying to find a way to circumvent the Supreme Court's Smith decision in 1944 that outlawed the white-only primaries. What the Boswell Amendment aimed to do was circumvent the Smith decision by establishing a very vague understanding clause. This is, in essence, a throwback to some of the Reconstruction era laws. The Boswell Amendment said that in order in order to register to vote, a person had to explain to the registrar's satisfaction a section of the United States Constitution. So it's very purposefully vague, and it's done so the registrars can make selections based on race and class. The Boswell Amendment has a pretty well-fleshed-out historiography. Bill Barnard in the 80s wrote a really great chapter on it in his book, Dixiecrats and Democrats. It's been talked about quite often. It's one of the early battles of the Dixiecrat movement. But the part about the Boswell Amendment that I've always found interesting and that really did get lost in the other discussions was that it really lived and died in Mobile. And by looking at how the Boswell Amendment came about and looking at how people in Mobile both supported it and tried to defeat it, really provides a great snapshot of two things. One is Mobile's burgeoning post-World War II civil rights movement, which I think is vastly underappreciated, and to the fact that Mobile really matters in this broader discussion. And this is the central thesis of the work that I've done on Mobile since I've been down here, is the fact that Mobile seems so vastly different from other cities in terms of its civil rights movement. You know, when you compare it to Montgomery or Birmingham or even Selma, it seems so vastly different, but it's really not as different as it seems, but in some cases sets a broader theme that you see throughout the state. I think this is one of those situations that highlights Mobile's movement, particularly with voting rights. The Boswell Amendment starts 
the cause of conversations that former Governor Frank Dixon has with the chairman of the state Democratic Party, a mobile attorney named Gessner McCorvey. McCorvey comes from a very well-groomed pedigree. His father was a professor of history and philosophy at the University of Alabama. On his mother's side, he was related to Julia Tutwiler. He really had established himself as a lawyer of some repute here in Mobile, but a, a real backroom colossus in the state Democratic Party. And he, more than any other chairman of the era, wielded the state party in real marketable ways. So it's McCorvey... Dixon's help that comes up with this amendment. He convinces the other members of the state party to support it. He convinces Bud Boswell, a representative from the Wiregrass, to propose this amendment to the legislature. They support it almost wholeheartedly. Uh, and it goes before the Alabama voters in referendum in the fall of 1946, at the same time that Jim Folsom is up for election, too. And so the Boswell Amendment sort of reveals, I think, two competing tendencies in the Democratic Party in Alabama. You have got sort of a growing populist support for James Folsom, who's decidedly outside normal parameters. And then you have this very rigid inter-party idea of the Boswell Amendment to keep a tight hold on just who can be a registered Democratic voter. One of the reasons why Mobile is important, the Boswell Amendment is crafted here, but some of the most vocal opposition to the amendment comes from here as well. You have a newspaper here called the Mobile Labor Journal, edited by Stanton Dan, who mounts vigorous opposition to the amendment. You have Mobile's newly elected member of the Alabama Senate, Joseph Langan, who's a returning World War II veteran, who is a Folsom loyalist, and who very soon will be one of the leading loyalists in the Alabama Democratic Party after the Dixiecrat split in 48, you have a growing African-American opposition to the amendment. You have the NAACP, which is at the time the largest in the state, led by John LaFleur, local postman. You have a grassroots organization that is organized specifically to fight the Boswell Amendment called the Mobile Voters and Veterans Group. And because of these various groups and their efforts, because of the importance of organized labor in Mobile, the amendment actually fails to pass in Mobile County by about 600 votes, which is a relative mute point because it passes statewide with 54% of the vote. Once it's on the books, it works exactly as Gessner McCorby had intended, and Mobile is again a good example of that. In the year before the amendment passed, there were 13,000 people that registered to vote in Mobile, and 300 or so were African American. In the year after the Boswell Amendment passed, not a single black person was able to register to vote because they just frankly couldn't pass the test because it didn't matter what their level of education was. All that mattered was the fact that they were not the right color, frankly, and the registrars refused to allow them to register simply by saying, you've not explained this section of the Constitution to my satisfaction, therefore you will not be allowed to register to vote today. That's the first real leg of it, is the fight to keep this from becoming law. But once it does become law, the fight to have it declared unconstitutional also comes from Mobile. And this is where it really gets into the internal dynamics of the black community, which changes, of course, over time. And this is a central theme of my broader study of race and politics in 20th century Mobile. John LaFleur had a large base of support here. The NAACP is the largest in the state. He's got a growing base of support because of organized labor. Still
still he can't really wield that growing power into anything that can defeat the Boswell Amendment for two reasons. One, the state NAACP and then the national NAACP are really interested in using another test case from Birmingham to try to have the amendment declared unconstitutional, and this ultimately founders. John LaFleur sees this as a black eye. He thinks that Mobile has a stronger case, but he, of course, has to go along with what the superiors say. Right in the middle of this, the Mobile Voters and Veterans Group find a lawyer from Chicago to challenge the Boswell Amendment. And they find a local man, Hunter Davis, who, along with 10 other plaintiffs, file suit saying that the Boswell Amendment infringes upon their constitutional rights, which is a real interesting move because it goes outside the state and gets a lawyer, and they do all this very quietly. And the first inkling that any of this is happening is after there's a press release issued from Chicago. And so this makes the NAACP look pretty bad. And John LaFleur very quickly reminds everyone that he told them that something like this would happen. The Voters and Veterans Association tries to pursue this case on their own. Financially, though, they can't really afford to sustain it. The suit is filed in the spring of 1948, so about 18 months after the Boswell Amendment became law. And it's scheduled for trial in the district court here in late fall of 1948. Shortly before the case uh, comes to trial, the NAACP and the Voters and Veterans Group barter a very short-lived compromise where the legal minutia of the NAACP comes in to help prosecute this case. Uh, and ultimately, the district court finds in favor of the plaintiffs in January of 1949, and they say that it is true that while the Boswell Amendment doesn't specifically mention race, the protections that the Constitution provides, the protections that the Smith decision provides as well, are aimed at both crude and clever political maneuvers. This is the way of them saying it doesn't matter that race is not specifically mentioned in this understanding clause. It's implied that race is what's really the factor here. And so they declared unconstitutional. The Supreme Court confirms their decision a few months later. And so that's sort of the end of the Boswell Amendment, round two. Round three, Gessner McCorvey goes back to the legislature through some of his contacts there and tries to pass what you can call Boswell Jr., which ignores the understanding clause and says to be a voter you have to be of good moral standing, which again is purposefully ambiguous. This never makes it off the Senate floor, however, thanks to Joe Langan and a few senators from North Alabama they lead a filibuster on the last day of the legislative session. You get this bill killed. Uh, in the process, Langan is defeated for re-election a few months later, and he ultimately will return to military service and go to Korea. And then in 1953, he winds up as one of Mobile's three uh, city commissioners, a spot he holds until the late 1960s. So it's really a first shot in the post-World War II voting rights battle in Alabama. But I think in looking at the dynamics in both the white and black communities in Mobile, I've always thought that it was a really good place to start in unpacking the political coalitions that emerged in Mobile in the 1950s, and then also just looking at just how similar municipal politics in Mobile was to what was happening in Montgomery and Birmingham. This is the same thrust that your book is going to take, correct? 
That's right. The book is going to be a little longer shot. This will be the fourth chapter in the book, but I really want to start with Mobile's opposition and support of the 1901 Constitution and pull it all the way to some of the more recent elections and very interested in the post-war period, particularly the interaction of white political candidates and black voters and the things that change the narratives that they face every four years. So this is a very political story, but there's a lot of social aspects that go along with it. When the NAACP is outlawed in 1956, there's an injection of new organizations, of new men, with Fred Shuttlesworth is a good example in Birmingham. The only thing that changes in Mobile as a result of outlawing the NAACP is the letterhead, because LaFleur still stays in charge. This idea of pursuing peaceful desegregation with a rising black voting base that can influence the course of an election is really important, and that's what emerges by the 1950s. And it holds in Mobile through the, the 50s and through much of the 1960s when it breaks down in other places, but then it breaks down in Mobile as well, but it does so in the late 1960s and through the 1970s at a time when a lot of these bigger issues are settled with the Voting Rights Act of 65 and the Civil Rights Act of 64. And so Mobile's movement is longer, and I think it's much more tied directly to the power of the ballot. That's why going from 1901 all the way through the 1980s, and even some of the stuff that happens in the 90s and into potentially last year's election, it's all a long and still unfolding story. So that's what the book will be about. What's the title of this tome? Politics and Civil Rights in 20th Century Mobile. Any idea when this will be out? No, it's still in the proposal stage. Uh, quite a bit of it is written. I'd love to have it out by 2016, 2017. I was very gratified to be chosen as a co-winner, especially because the association has supported this research before. I won the Clinton and Evelyn Coley Research Award to continue the research on this very topic. So I was very gratified for that support then, and I'm equally grateful to be chosen as a co-winner of the Howard Award. I look forward to you continuing this line of research as well as branching out into others as time goes on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.